Welcome to Buy My Telingual today. My name is Elizabeth Aitai and I'm your host. My guest today is a writer living in London who writes about contemporary art and digital culture for many magazines including Freeze, Art Review and Art Agenda. She's currently working on a non-fiction book titled If Anything Happens that looks at football, soccer, as a prism through which to explore questions about immigration, nationalism, race, gender, money, love, and the possibility of belonging. Um, my name is Orit Gat. I'm originally from Israel, but I live in New York now. What is your mother language? Hebrew. And what other languages do you speak? Also French and English. Do you remember when, oh, at what age did you start learning French and English? Um, I started learning English in fifth grade, which was, I guess, 11, and French when I was 17. Which language uh, from the three languages do you feel most comfortable with? English. And what about Hebrew? I never really use it. So like, I'll talk sometimes on the phone to my family. I have a couple of Israeli friends, but my Israeli friends abroad are also more comfortable in English. I think the funniest thing that happens is when they're also artists or like in the art world, we will have a conversation in Hebrew and hang out and chat, and then we'll start talking about art or anything professional, and we'll immediately just switch to English without even noticing. It's like, I have one friend who really pushes me to try and like be able to define ideas in my native language, but like I write and I never write in Hebrew. So like my capability, like the texture, the nuance, the like depth of the way I use language as a writer only happens in English. So how would you compare English and Hebrew? In which situations are you using your native language? Counting. I think that's about it. Mm -hmm. And I learned that from my mother, who doesn't speak Hebrew as her native language. And she still counts in Romanian. Yeah, and I think, I don't know if I expected that to happen, and thus I do it. Or if she's right, then it's really like, that's the most intuitive thing. We all count in the native language. Yeah, it's such a weird thing. Yeah. yeah, I still, like, I literally don't think I could. I can count in French, right? Like, if I, like, give someone money and I'll go, like, a, deux, trois. But instinctively, in my mind, I will always do it in Hebrew. Mm -hmm. What language do you use if you um, want to communicate emotional states? English. English? Yeah. I don't know. I feel like I've lived, like, the past 10 years just speaking English and... There's a distance that happens in Hebrew that I find myself translating things in my mind. Like when someone says something very emotionally like intense or something like that, I translate it in my mind to English to like bring it back to something comprehensible to me. So I guess maybe Hebrew would touch me more or like would shake me more, but it's also a force of habit. I'm not used to having like very emotional, intense conversations in my native language and thus it's like, oh, so much going on. Why would Hebrew touch you more? Um, I think just because it brings more of a child in me, right? Like, I've stopped speaking it when I was 17. I think emotionally, like, that level of discourse has stopped for me when I was quite young. So it brings you back into that age? I think so. Does that feel comfortable? No, it feels awful. <laughs> um, I've used Hebrew in emotional situations in my life. I definitely remember, like, while going through 
breakups or tough conversations. My way to isolate myself from other people was to think in Hebrew, which I never do instinctively. Um, and so it's like a protective thing. Like I'm standing in front of someone. I'm trying to explain to them why I'm leaving them or like why things are tough. And in order to like keep a sense of self, I like think in Hebrew while speaking in English. So you translate internally. No, I speak and communicate externally in English, but everything that I've internalized, like, or like I talk to myself to be like, keep doing this or like, you're being good, like you're being strong. That internal voice happens in Hebrew. I don't do that very often, only in like heightened emotional states mm-hmm. then you fall back into the native language that's beautiful mm-hmm. does it give you a sense of grounding it just gives me a sense of like a self that's separate from other people which is quite hard to have sometimes mm-hmm. yeah um what language are your dreams in english do you remember a time when you would dream in hebrew I'm sure, I mean, I didn't speak another language until I was a teenager, so I'm sure I dreamt in Hebrew as a child. I also remember dreaming in French when I lived in France. Like, the language in which you live your day-to-day life is the language in which you dream, or I dream, I guess. Do you remember how it felt to realize for the first time that you switched language in your dreams? Not in my dreams, but I definitely remember like a lot of like milestones like that. Like the first time you make a joke in a foreign language and everybody laughs and you're like, okay, I've got this one. Um, I can't remember it in dreams, but it took a while until French became like my day-to-day life. Initially, because my English was stronger when I moved to France, because I've just studied it for longer, I would think about all the day-to-day things like, oh, I have to go to the grocery store and get milk and washing detergent. I would think about all of those things in French and every and like, the experiences that I was having and the people that I was meeting I would think about in English and then the more my life became like so grounded in France and the stronger my French got the more my entire cognitive state moved and shifted to French also my dreams are very mundane (laughs) and thus I would probably dream in French I would dream that I would go to the grocery store and get milk (laughs) (laughs) well then yeah probably because it was such an effort at the beginning no that it really took over your mind No, I think I was just so... Like, A, my dreams are still totally mundane. Like, I still dream about getting library books. <laughs> um, and also, like, I think then I was just so young. Like, everything seemed exciting and nothing seemed like an effort. It's like... I was learning everything, right? Like, I remember once asking a woman at the grocery store what kind of vegetable something was because I wanted to make something Middle Eastern and I didn't know the names of vegetables in French and I didn't really know how to make things. And, like, I didn't, like, go to the grocery store that many times until I was 17, right? Like, I would go with my mother and she would choose everything. Mm-hmm. I remember the first time when I found a spice in the mm-hmm. U.S. that I w- we would use, like, all the time in, in Hungarian kitchen. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, you just don't have the spice in this country. But I didn't know what it was called. Uh, <laughs> and then when I finally realized, it was caraway, you know? Uh-huh, caraway like seeds, yeah. yeah. And I'm like, oh, they have caraway. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that shift between languages and experiences and, like, also because the West is organized in such a, like, the way you would buy spices in Israel is, like, there would be, like, piles of spices and you would, like, pick them up and smell them, right? Um, you don't do that in the West. It comes in little boxes. So, like, how would you know what it smells like? How would you know what it is? True. Is there a specific situation that you use French still today? Only, like, professional situations, like... I don't have friends with whom I speak more French than English in New York because 
even my French speaking friends in New York, we talk in a language in which we can communicate best. And often like it'll be English. Um, we'll use French sometimes to like make a joke or like explain something. Like I have one friend in New York who speaks the exact same languages that I do. And it's just such an amazing experience to have someone in your life with whom you're never lost for words. You can always be so exact because French would have that word or Hebrew would have that word. And like you can just switch between them. But otherwise, just professionally, like I'll like do translation work or I'll like, read stuff in French or something like that. Was there a time or how did the hierarchy of languages within your life change? Hmm. That's a nice question. It definitely was like it was Hebrew, then English, then French. And then it was Hebrew, then French, then English. And then it was French, English to Hebrew. And now it's English to Hebrew to French. <laughs> So like, there are definitely moments where like I found one language easiest. But there was definitely, I think like since I was like 17 and left Israel, like, my language skills, have de like my native language skills have deteriorated to a level that, I mean, my Hebrew now is stronger than my French. And yet I still feel like more like myself in French because I lived there as an adult. So like even though I could probably write a much more concise email in Hebrew, I can't tell you the last time I wrote an email in my native language. And I can tell you that I wrote an email in French this week. But I still feel like I have less confidence in my native language than I do in the languages I spoke professionally or as an adult. Mm -hmm. When it comes to memories, how do you memorize events in your life? I think everything gets translated into the language in which you live. When I think I've been writing a lot about my childhood now, like I write it in English, I think about it in English. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I watch things in Hebrew because I'm writing about just things from Israel from the 90s. And in my mind, I translate that into English as well. It's interesting because I remember seeing based on which language I was in, mm -hmm. uh, however the experience happened to me. Yeah, Maybe not fully, but definitely the language of that type comes creeps in a little bit i wonder if we all live in different ways like some of us just translate all the time and some of us just like shift between languages and i also wonder if i keep translating because i wasn't raised multilingual it's something that i've like picked up across time and throughout my life i see my friends kids who are multilingual or bilingual and how they know what language to speak in what situation or how to speak in what situation i definitely didn't have that and thus i flatten everything into the language in which i live in that moment mm -hmm. so you always translate everything into the language right now i translate everything into english all the time even like i was in Israel and I still do that. Mm -hmm. If you think about the rhythm of the different languages you speak, and it's very interesting with you because they're different language families. Yeah. Do you feel the rhythm? And do the different rhythms of each language affect your personality or your physicality? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think I find Hebrew to be it's very curt, right? And like it doesn't there aren't a lot of synonyms. It's a very, very small language. It's a very new language too. Like modern Hebrew, the language that I speak. I speak ancient Hebrew as well. You like study it in school. But modern Hebrew was invented in the early nineteen hundreds. And it's missing words. Like nothing has a synonym. It makes you into a very concise person. Like you're very, very direct because there's no way to like go around anything. And French is exactly the opposite, right? French allows you to linger on the way things sound and like 
I have a lot of interest in a specific kind of writing in French that's very modern. Like it like starts with like nouveau roman writing, with like trying to break down the language, and like there's there's a reason why so much linguistic theory comes from French. But then I read 19th century novels. You just allow yourself to get carried away in the way like Flaubert uses language. It's so attractive, and even if it's not, I mean, the content is experimental, and thus the use of language can be less modern in like the great novelists of the 19th century in France but I want to be carried away like I'm like totally attracted to it I'm totally like fascinated by it in English it feels very practical right it feels like it has endless possibilities and you can try things out in English I think I'm definitely thinking about this like a writer and a reader the grammatical structure is more open you can break down like maybe I just have like a stronger sense of it than Hebrew and French but I still think that like there's a way of writing in English that allows you like even if it doesn't like sound as beautiful and it's not as seductive as French it can be more interesting and thus more beautiful like more complex and thus more beautiful so would you see that or when using English you're a more analytical person overall or a more matter-of-fact like no more matter-of-fact than Hebrew I think in English, maybe I'm analytical. I'm very much like an observer of the language and the way people use it. It's very much like a foreigner's way of being, right? Like you pick up on other people's turns of phrases and manners of speech and you adopt them into your own use of language and they just stick. I could tell you basically like who or when I picked up certain turns of phrases that I still use. And I think about that all the time. I'm like, oh, that came from that person in England, like, you know, three or four years ago. And I still do that. <laughs> so the way you use language like your personal history yeah how do you define cultural belonging i don't know i mean that's a really hard question right like yeah because people could feel that they belong and then something about the society in which you live or you want to belong to or you think that you belong to will push you away like racism for example i think that a cultural belonging is something that we constantly like make a case for but i don't even know like the fact that, like the fact is that i feel very american for example and most americans laugh when i say that because they don't think of myself as american at all and i end up exoticizing a lot of americans too right like my friends experiences are so different to mine i've just been so exposed to an idea of america throughout my life because of a cultural hegemony um that it feels more familiar but i now no longer like i also it's not like i belong where i'm from i mean that's like that's like visibly the case I guess cultural belonging is like something that you're constantly like arguing for or that you just give up on. And that's okay too. Like I belong more in like an urban cultural sphere. I belong more in New York with other people in the art world who are also foreigners, all of us speaking English as like a way to meet in the middle than I would in Oklahoma or than I would in like Southern Israel. It's an interesting song. It's really it's sad. sad. Why is it sad? Because I think that People want to belong, especially where they live. And it's quite often just not a possibility. You know, I mean, I'm unrooted and can be often painful to not realize, but to bring back that consciousness of, yes, okay, I've been unrooted. And even though I love the place I'm from, I could never, ever go back or live there because I don't belong. And that's a loss I, you know, I came to terms with. But uh, I gained so much through that unrootedness mm -hmm. after the pain. And I think probably you too but we live lives the cultures you can dive in and for me it is that i 
have little details when I walk through life, a culture or nature, and details remind me of different homes. So I can say, oh, this forest reminds me of Transylvania or California reminds me of the Black Sea. So um, that's how I find comfort in unifying memories with Mm -hmm. present. I wouldn't take any of it back. I'm happy mm. to have immigrated and I'm happy to have had multiple experiences and I'm delighted to speak languages. Like yeah. I think that it's one of the things that satisfy me the most that I'm curious about the most. I don't think I would have become a writer had I not spoken numerous languages, but I don't really wish that on or I don't regret it. It sure as hell wasn't always easy. Yeah. And it does make you feel, I don't know, the question of like being grounded. I've missed home a lot. And I think about like the way the Mediterranean smells. I've never for a second considered living there again. And that's a way of being in the world where like one option is lacking. That option that everybody has to like go home, quote unquote, that just doesn't exist for me. Mm -hmm. It's like never going to happen. Yeah. It's sad. Like it's, there's something about that, that like, it does mean that you're like forever. I seriously think that it means that you're forever checking to see if somewhere else is home. And I call everywhere home, right? I say, like, I'm going home to London, I'm going home to New York, I'm going home to Paris, I'm going home to Tel Aviv. I refer to all of them as home. Mm-hmm. But I think possibly because nothing actually is. What I find really interesting with regard to home is that Europeans, and probably it's also as a result that they're an old, con- like old continent, with a lot of history and pain and all that. And in Europe, people define home in relation to their homeland. Mm-hmm. So it's really important, the earth that you walk on. Whereas in America, people say home was where your heart is. <laughs> like literally, and I've been, I've been thinking about it so often. If I ask you where home is right now, what would you say? Right now it's here. <laughs> <laughs> it's in Romania. In, I feel home in Budapest as well. Trier, Germany. But Cologne as well, because my sister moved there. (laughs) How do you define a migrant? Who's a migrant for you? That's actually something I've been thinking about a lot, because... I think that there's a really complicated, there are two ideas of migration, right? Like there's like this really privileged migration of people who are referred to as quote unquote international and there are migrants and immigrants and the two people, the international migrants also want to separate themselves in a way. And I think that one of the most important things that we can do is normalize the idea of immigration. Actually, no one is that different. Like we all ended up somewhere because we couldn't be where we are from for personal reasons, for political reasons, for employment or economic reasons, like all of these things, like I don't want to flatten these experiences, you know, like my experience and the experience of a Syrian migrant who is from like, I don't know, 30 miles away from where I'm from is very, very different. But in the eyes of an American, like we should both be seen in the same way as like people who left their home countries who want to be members of this society and who will be good members of this society if like let in. I'm also like, I'm not a big fan of closed borders, obviously, as someone who applied for visas my entire life. I think there's something like that we can do as immigrants to like, educate the local population where we live to see that 
all of us are the same in this and that we've all left for a reason because my privilege having moved to France to get a BA or to the States to get an MA and then I speak the local language and that I've always had a visa and I've never been illegal there. It's important for them to see me in the context of the Syrian migrant because I am more legible to them, right? And it's important for them to know that immigration has many, many facets, but that at the end of the day, it should have the same results. It's hard. When people travel in former times or they would migrate, they brought news mm-hmm. and they brought the perspective from the outside world. And that now that we're all connected through the internet and everyone's traveling, we assume we don't need news. Mm-hmm. Or the outside perspective is not as welcome anymore. We're definitely living in a rise of nationalism mm-hmm. and like everything that brings like multiculturalism or diversity in a way threatens that really fragile thing, which is the nation state, because the nation state is fragile and it's probably ending yeah because it's a constructed uh it's yeah it's a construct it makes no sense like it makes no sense in an age of like global capitalism where like the only thing that's moving is money and goods and not people do you consider yourself a migrant yes definitely more than anything else before i'm an israeli before i'm a jew before i'm a woman i'm an immigrant when did that consciousness The second I moved to France, it was such an easy thing to understand, like not easy to understand, but like it was so visible in my experience, like also like because I look so Middle Eastern and in France that connotes something really specific that has to do with colonialism, even though I didn't come from a former colony. But I met so many other Middle Easterners in France and we all spoke French between us rather than like, I mean, I speak really bad Arabic, so it doesn't actually matter, but... Being an immigrant like, allowed us to see beyond the cultural differences of the political situation where we're from, because like Israelis and Lebanese are very, very similar, the same way that Israelis and Egyptians are very, very similar. We come from a very similar culture and climate. So being away, being an immigrant, allowed me to like break out of an idea of self that... I feel like was hammered into me in Israeli education, which is very nationalistic, obviously, and like quite obsessed with questions of history and ownership of the place and all these things that I now feel very confused about. And that seemed very obvious to me as a teenager. So like the second I moved out, I could see a way out of that. And immigration, like being an immigrant, was the thing that allowed me that. So you actually grew... Oh, yeah. I became such a better person, too. That, like, toughness of being Israeli and, like, feeling like you have a right to a place and the violence that we all grow with. Being away gave me right to shed a lot of that. I'm trying to think about it more now that I'm an adult and, like, maybe, like, take that side of myself a little more and understand it more. But thank God that I'm not still there. Were there any situations where you wished not to be a migrant? Oh my god, yeah, of course. I would have loved any other passports. <laughs> um, I can't travel almost anywhere on my passports. Like, if I had a French passport, an American passport, I could go to Beirut, for example. I think mainly, like, at airports, in front of immigration officials or officers. Sometimes I wish I spoke English as a native language because professionally it's really hard to argue for your position as someone who speaks English as a second language, especially like as an editor, as a writer. People ask me about this all the time. I sometimes lie and say I grew up in the States. I would have loved to not I would have loved to have grown up in the States or in France and like have I swear like this will sound so spoiled, but like I think they had easier lives. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Like, I don't wish on anyone, like, the stuff that I grew up in. I wouldn't want to have kids and take them there. Like, they don't need to see war. Yeah, I hear you. 
I'm sorry. Well, it is what it is. Yeah. These are tough questions, right? They are. You were talking about the frustrations of um, being at their borders. Do you experience frustrations with language ever? No. Like, I've... I think I'm quite privileged. <laughs> like, I show up in front of a TSA agent in JFK, and I sound American. And, I mean, they know I'm not, but I, my command of the language is good enough that they would often ask me, like, how long I've been there. Sometimes it comes with, like, a combative thing. Like, there was definitely one time I came back to the States, and the TSA agent asked me why I'm trying so hard to stay there, which just, like, pierced my heart so much because because it was home. I think language-wise, I've always been really lucky and quite privileged. Like, I have an aptitude to languages, and it gives you so much privilege to be able to like, stand in front of a government official and speak to them in their language in a way that connotes respect toward them and that earns respect for you. So lucky. Well, lucky, but also you you learned the language. Yeah, but there's definitely like an aptitude to languages, which is something that you're basically like, it's like, it's a talent. It's not something I've earned in any way. And I'm, I'm so grateful for it. Last question. What do you think about this utopia of having a universal language? <laughs> like Babel, you mean? Mm. Like a Babylonian idea? Yeah, but you know, there was also Esperanto. I believe in the 80s and 90s. Oh, oh Esperanto is like from the 19th century. Oh, 19th I know century. so much okay. about Esperanto, actually. Seriously? My really good friend from Israel, her grandfather was friends with Zamenhof, who developed Esperanto. Zamenhof was a Jew who always wanted to immigrate to Israel. There's a main street in Tel Aviv named after him. Like, it's a story, it's a history that's told a lot in Israel. I mean, it's a utopian idea of language and Israel is an example that that's possible, right? Like, it is a nation of people who all speak a language that's 120 years old. It's unbelievable. It's kind of crazy. My grandparents' generation would be the first to have spoken it as a native language. And thus, like, Israelis have sympathy for Esperanto because it's a, it's not a similar project because it's an international project, but like, it runs parallel. Like, it's a contemporary language to Hebrew, to modern Hebrew. It was invented by a Jew. And then my friend's grandfather invented, like, helped Zamenhof invent it. It's a fascinating language like the idea of like taking everything that's like simple and comprehensible and like logical about a bunch of european languages and combining them is obviously like both really beautiful and so pragmatic that it's just like there's some sort of like casualness to the way languages develop that obviously is missing from a project like Esperanto. I love the idea that there are communities of Esperanto speakers. Do you know this? So like no. Around the world, there are like towns and communities of people who speak Esperanto. And if you speak Esperanto and end up there, they will let you in because you share a language. Wow, so they solely define culture through language. Yeah, which is amazing. Wow. That's it, like... I've been thinking a lot about the fact that like the second we all decide to have a conversation before we even decide to talk, we decide that we will speak in English, right? It's like English has become like in the cultural sphere, in the art world, so dominant that we don't even question it. And it comes with so much privilege for the Anglophone world. And it's like related to colonialism and to the histories of colonialism. All of these complexities are some of the things that shape my worldview, and I can't imagine them not being there. And I also, like, would you want to only, like, if all of us only spoke English or only spoke Esperanto, 
there's that way of like seeing the world in a multitude of ways because you speak a multitude of languages that will disappear and like histories and writing and like what do we all do you not want to have that as like aspiration that one day you'll learn russian so you could read i don't know dostoevsky in russian in russian like we all want to have that dream what would we give up all language all literature into like a translation into a language that's like as limited as esperanto or a language that's as limited as english mm-hmm. that doesn't sound good no well thank you thank you it's really interesting in order to learn more about Orit's work, visit her website oritgat.com or follow her on social media. Thank you for joining us today. Please like, share and subscribe to receive updates on new episodes.